I'm Ben Solak, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Kelly, Danny Heifetz, and Craig Horbeck. Join us twice a week as we talk everything NFL Draft and break down all the players who will make your team better. Except the Rams, because they don't really have any picks. Check us out on the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. This episode of the Ringer F1 Show is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall chosen by champions. Hello, welcome to the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Megan Schuster. I will be your host today and I am joined by my wonderful Ringer colleague, Jody Walker. Jody, how are you? Megan, I'm so good. I'm so excited to be here. This is just the best time of the year uh, when Drive to Survive comes out. And I get it's, to talk about sports for a little while here at The Ringer. <laughs> it's exceptional. Uh, Jody's joining us because she is both a pop culture wizard and a Drive to Survive and F1 enthusiast. And today we're going to be breaking down the first five episodes from the new season of Drive to Survive. Personally, I can't believe we're already five seasons into Drive to Survive, but I hope it never ends. One of my favorite offerings of TV every year. Um, the first five episodes I found to be pretty illuminating facing or, you know, div- diving into some of the issues teams faced with new car regulations, uh, some of the early driver silly season drama, team principals generally acting like five-year-olds, uh, really has it all. Um, I just want to issue a spoiler warning up top. If you have not seen the first five episodes and you're planning to, please press pause here, come back and listen. We'll still be here. Um, but Jody, we can get into episode specifics in just a bit, but I wanted to start with your overview of the first five episodes. What did you like? What didn't you like for the kind of what you expected? Um, what was your takeaway? I really enjoyed these first five episodes. I, As I believe you know, Megan, but I think I should clarify for the audience. I uh, am a Drive to Survive canon-only F1 uh, watcher. So I, I pretty much try to stay unspoiled on the actual <laughs> F1 season so that I can watch Drive to Survive with a clear mind and a clear heart every with every new season. Because what I really am is a reality TV enthusiast. So Mm. I know here at the Ringer F1 show, you guys are sports journalists. You are real consumers of the product and your listeners are, you know, wizards about this kind of stuff. But I'm really here for the lens of the docuseries and the cultivation of storylines and narratives. And I think that the series series does an incredible job, but it was Mm -hmm. also just such 
an incredible insight to realize how well this particular sport is suited to this kind of television. And I think especially in season five, they're highlighting a lot how the sport is designed for drama. And with Mm -hmm. each new season of F1, they are looking for more ways to bring in more drama into the sport. And like in that way, it is exactly like reality TV, you know? <laughs> like, it's kind of hilarious that reality TV is like, se- on Selling Sunset, they have to like make up drama mm-hmm. about selling houses because there is no innate or inherent drama in selling houses, really. But in Formula One, there is so much <laughs> like true drama in the sliding around of these contracts, in the like intimacy of there only being 20. 10 teams and 20 Mm -hmm. drivers and the teammates having to like compete against each other. And that's not to even mention the insane sport that they're actually playing out on the track. And so learning about that stuff for me, the new car designs, the new regulations, the sort of evening out of budgets right in episode one was so interesting and was really exciting. Like, ooh, they're trying to do something here. Like, they're trying to deliver. (laughs) And what they ultimately delivered were a bunch of cars that look like little bugs. It's like (laughs) as if the cars did not already look weird enough. Now we are dealing with these, like, new issue, new regulation cars, and they just cannot stop shaking. They just can't stop (laughs) shaking. And I found that, like, completely kind of... I found it heartbreaking for, like, Lewis Hamilton, but also sort of hilarious that they spend millions of dollars. They have these huge teams of people to design these cars, and then they get out on the the track, and it's just like... (laughs) You can't make it up. (laughs) One one of my lasting images from, from last season of Formula One was Lewis in Baku, just almost, like, crawling out of his car after the race and and like he just like couldn't straighten his back it, it was a very painful image um and not really at all funny when you think about like the actual severity of it but yeah just the fact that this is like this is the greatest formula one driver probably of all time and yet he is dealing with one of the hardest most physically challenging cars to drive on the grid and um, wa- like watching him climb out of that car is is a very very lasting image for me. Um, but but I think what you said about Drive to Survive as a whole is very very spot on. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and now that I am watching Formula One as it goes on during a season, race to race, week to week, I, I found that I appreciate the season and Drive to Survive for very different things. The season, you know, mm. I get the whole narrative of it, what's actually happening on the track, but. Drive to Survive, I, I watch, like you said, for as reality TV. Like, I, I want to see the backdoor dealings between Zach Brown and Otmar and, like, and and just, like, Toto and Christian Horner going at each other over the porpoising and, you know, Christian not wanting there to be new regulations and Toto with his car being so jacked up, wanting these new safety precautions so that everyone has to deal with what he's dealing with and, yeah, it's almost like two completely separate entities for me, and I love them mm-hmm. both so much yeah. for such different reasons. That's great. great. I'm glad that you can love them both and see them as sort of different things because obviously Drive to Survive is not going to tell the full story. It's mm-hmm. like 
total maybe seven hours of a full season of sports, of qualifying, of race day, of the in-between, of the contract negotiations. Like, and that really is how reality TV is made. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when they film a season of Below Deck, which is honestly a pretty apt comparison because they're both workplace dramas. Like when they when they film a season of Below Deck, they they end up with just so much footage. And while Mm -hmm. you're filming it, you don't know what storylines are coming out of it. Like, you don't know what is going to emerge as the most interesting and most dramatic thing to draw viewers in. You only know that at the very end. And then you have to go back into all the footage from months ago and pull out those storylines from when Mm -hmm. you didn't even know they existed. Um, The role of these editors, and I know that 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 can also make, like, true F1 fans angry as well yes, when yes, you're when you're going back much. and creating a storyline that was not there in the beginning mm-hmm. but it was there because they found it and it was there <laughs> <laughs> it is great that that has definitely been one of the criticisms from the very hardened f1 fans is that they over dramatize they overblow things and and that's true i mean like objectively true but that's why i like drive to survive so i'm not complaining should we get into the episodes should we start let's do it so we start with episode one and Perhaps the all-time show opening scene that I have seen in my whole life with Gunther Steiner and Mattia Bonotto driving this tiny-ass clown car through a <laughs> vineyard in the Dolomites in Italy. The buddy cop movie that I need now, preferably. Um, just like the, those two going back and forth is something I would watch for the rest of my life. I actually rewatched it this morning in preparation for this podcast and found myself almost wanting to speak with an Italian accent and doing the Italian, <laughs> you know, hand gesture just just from that one little scene. Um, th- those two are iconic. Gunther obviously is, you know, maybe now the main character of Drive to Survive now that Daniel Ricardo has taken a little bit of a step back and his performance not being so great on track. Um, how, did, how did you feel about re- being reunited with Gunther in that way? Oh, I loved it. He's he's my favorite. And Mattia even says that to him, I think, inside (laughs) that clown car or during the narration outside of it, that he is the protagonist of Drive to Survive. And it's Mm -hmm. true. Like, they're, you know, they highlight different people each season, but they're always going to highlight Gunter because he's so funny and he's game, you know, like he's down for it. And he is someone and his team, I think, really benefit from the show. Like, the mm-hmm. show is yet another tool in these teams' toolbox to be able to succeed in some way if they're not succeeding in other ways. And, like, he has been such a major part of that. I, I think that maybe some people don't love these somewhat planned, somewhat contrived scenes, but I can't get enough of stuffing these giant men into tiny cars. <laughs> I love it. They've done it with, like... LeClaire and Carlos, they've done opening this season like that. I just thought was so funny and so perfect. Mm -hmm. And it was also beautiful. And, you know, like lovely. This is a travel show and the landscapes are a big part of it. And it was so gorgeous. And am I to understand that Mattia has a vineyard? Were they going to his his vineyard? Yes. Yes. Mattia's vineyard. Yes. So they were talking about some of the intricacies of of wine and they make this apt comparison to F1 about it all being quality over quantity. And, you know, they kind of nudge, nudge each other like, yeah, just like what we're doing with cars. Great. Sure, guys. Sure. (laughs) Zero nuance. Loved all of it. Perfect. Perfect scene. Um, Outside of that, though, this first episode does kind of a lot of work. It introduces the fact that there are new cars this season, new car regulations. 
that we'll be dealing with the cost cap for the second year, but really like the ramifications of the cost cap for the first time. Um, we get another wonderful scene with all the drivers walking around the grid and inspecting each other's new cars and everyone walking over to poor George Russell, who's standing <laughs> next to this Mercedes and like Sebastian Vettel, I'm pretty sure calls it a shit box and even makes like a, like a fart noise basically about how it looks. And, you know, Lewis is over admiring the Ferrari and it's just, it's very sweet in how they're all, uh, trying to gain their own kind of psychological competitive advantages and all being, you know, the nosy neighbor, I guess, of, of the grid. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's really funny to see them in that, you know, because these these guys, like, they're like gods. Like, they're so big. Their characters and their personalities and what they're actually capable of is so mm-hmm. huge that any chance you get to see them all together talking with one another and then just kind of being normal and especially being, like, a little nervous or a little unsure is always really gratifying. I think it sort of like grounds the series in a way of like, you really are in between the lines of these extreme storylines, getting Mm -hmm. glimpses of like who these guys really are. And that's really fun. I love George Russell being like, I don't know, man, I didn't design it. Like I'm (laughs) looking at it for the first time too. (laughs) It was so funny. He was very trying to be very careful about not insulting the Mercedes designers and mechanics and things. And in his, yeah. his critiques of the car, he was like, well, we'll see. I, you know, hopefully it's really fast while everyone is just like, George, you have to drive this this year. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it was it was really wonderful. Really wonderful. Poor George. Um, across the rest of the episode, we get Haas's decision to separate from Nikita Mazepin over, um, you know, the Russian sanctions in sport, bringing back Kevin Magnuson, who is one of my favorite drivers, I was so, so thrilled to see him back and especially to see his very adorable one-year-old daughter who might be the most precious child I have seen in in my many days on this earth. Um, she was the all- most expressive baby. Like, Darling. She was so, it was like she was cheering him on. She yes. was so, yes. so cute and so blonde, as seems to be regulation <laughs> for Haas, like only the blonde, most natural blonde drivers they can find. Uh-huh. A hundred percent. I think that's a prerequisite for them at this point. Um, we also get the start of Mercedes struggles, but most importantly, I think we get the initial Ferrari uh, discussion and, and them coming out on track, being very, very fast, looking like a force. Um, it was a little bit sad for me knowing how this season ended up for them at the end and all of their strategy struggles going on to see their kind of raw optimism in this episode. Uh Charles Leclerc saying he couldn't ask for anything more in this car. Just just very tough seeing them start off so strong, kind of knowing what happens at, at the end of the season. But obviously, we get more into that later, so we can kind of save that discussion for a minute. But uh, yeah, just overall, a great, great kickoff episode. I found myself very, very jazzed. I just, I likewise love Kevin Magnuson, mm-hmm. and I love getting that storyline in the first episode because it's so signature drive to survive, like sort of clawing out this underdog story from (laughs) the midfield. Um, And just to see him come back with such triumph and also like this personal growth was really fun. And I even loved the way they filmed it with him in the car and, you know, his engineer asking him, 
like, can you do this one lap? And before he answers, they cut back to his house Mm -hmm. and him playing with his adorable baby who he says has changed his outlook on life and made him Mm -hmm. less angry and all of these things that then seem to have potentially really had an an impact on the way he drives and the way he's approaching coming into this season after having not driven an F1 for a year. Right. Um, And then cutting right back to him in the car, that close-up on his eyes. I just thought that was so well done. Mm -hmm. And it's making me root for him for the rest of the season as I'm watching it in the show. You know, like, we have heroes and we have villains, and he has become a hero of the season. Yes. It was a very, very triumphant return. Very fun to see him reunite with Gunther. They clearly have a wonderful bond and... Yeah, just just very sweet all the way around. Episode two, we get right into Mercedes porpoising. We get all of the jaw-shaking, head-knocking footage. The helmet cam stuff was really kind of brutal for me to watch. They focused this one image on George Russell as he's going down a straight, and his head is just, like, bobbing up and down and in very, like, almost hummingbird-like succession, very quickly, very violently. And we start to really kind of see the effect that this is having, not just on Mercedes in the points, but also on their drivers. Lewis's struggles, uh, Toto straight up apologizing to Lewis that he has to drive this car at this point in his career, which was very, very eye-opening. And we also get the reaction to all of this. Christian Horner, of course, from other team principals across the grid who seem to have zero sympathy for Mercedes going through this. And in Christian's case, when he's kind of discussing these problems with the drive to survive producers, he lets out this straight up evil cackle that I, w- I was like, you cackle. And, and you, he was trying not to like he was actually, it seemed like trying to stay diplomatic. And it came out from like the most visceral part of his soul. He could not keep it inside <laughs> to say like, <laughs> the you know, just how wonderful it is. And I don't think it's about Mercedes at all. It's about Toto. Like, how mm-hmm. wonderful it... He he cannot help but re- remind us that, like, you know, at, per him, Toto was given a winning package and he's never had to fight for it. And now he's having to fight for it. And <laughs> isn't that great? <laughs> Truly just iconic performance from Christian. Even, even from what we would normally expect from him, that felt like, you know, he's raising his game along with everyone else on the paddock. It was It was wonderful. We get a little bit of an explanation of why this is happening to Mercedes. They show in this episode and the previous episode that this was not just a Mercedes thing at the very beginning of this season. Ferrari was experiencing some of this. A bunch of other cars on the grid were experiencing this because of some of the new car regulations. They had shifted this so that these cars are now ground effect, which means that they're kind of sucked to the ground and that's how they maintain speed and their velocity and things like that. But that also causes when, you know, air pockets flow through, it can cause some of that bouncing. And so this is all new to all of these teams, but most of them seem to fix it pretty quickly. Uh, except for Mercedes, they, they really struggle with this and all of their car development. Um, and then we get to Baku, which is, you know, as we've already kind of mentioned the, the race where Lewis has to crawl out of his car. They, they both finished three and four George and Lewis respectively in the race. So it's not like the car has zero speed, but Um, This is when Toto comes on and apologizes. Lewis hobbles out of the car. And that brings us to one of my favorite scenes from the first five episodes, which is this team principal meeting in Montreal ahead of the Canadian Grand Prix. Um, 
the Formula I, One. I'm glad that was one of your favorite scenes, Megan, because that is one of the kinds of scenes that makes me want to like crawl under my couch when I'm watching <laughs> it on like a reality TV show or Drive to Survive is like, oh no, this person has no self-awareness and they're about <laughs> to ruin their own life. <laughs> It was it was truly incredible. You you can see that it's going to happen right from the opening kind of pan of the room. You get um, the Formula One CEO is in there and all of these team principals. Gunther is, of course, being the class clown and talking while all of these people are trying to deal with something very serious and he gets reprimanded, which is wonderful. But then we started on this porpoising thing and, and you can just see from Toto's eyes that he is he is pissed. He is not focused on the cameras. He is not focused on anything else. And He's ready to just kind of come in and let it rip. He makes all these kind of threats to these other team principals. Like, if you guys were going through this, I would rake you over the coals. I would, you know, like just all of these kind of safety regulations. And he is essentially pleading with them to try and make this a part of their kind of new safety proposal and that they're to make this bake this into some of the new regulations going forward. Um Mattia kind of tries to rein him in. And finally, Christian just says, you've got a problem. Change your fucking car. And that's when everything explodes. And they go back and forth. Toto is trying to say, well, you've got problems. Checo says you have problems. Christian's like, come at me, bro. Where did Checo ever say this? I've never heard of any of this. Um Totally says, like, I have it printed out like a yes. true, like a true boomer. He's like, I've got it printed on paper. I have the emails. They are, I have hard copies of the emails. Also very Housewives-esque to like print something out for evidence. I know. I, I really, I think the only re- way that scene could have been better for me is if he had whipped out the paper from the inside exactly. of his jacket pocket and was like, I have them right here. Ultimately, and this is, you know, not really presented in the show, but this, was kind of successful for Toto. It did eventually need lead to some new rules about porpoising that will go into effect for 2023. Um, the FIA will be kind of measuring the intensity of porpoising. They're changing some rules about the car builds and how you know stiff things can be and basically did ultimately enact this as a safety precaution for drivers. So Toto ultimately got his way. Very, very fascinating back and forth, especially, you know, with just how sheerly intense these intra-team principal interactions are and will be throughout the season. I felt like it set an appropriate stage for some of the uh, the conflict we will get later on once we get into some of the, the silly season drama, I guess. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I said earlier, like it's always kind of a treat when you get to see all of the drivers together and how they interact and like when it doesn't have to do with the driving and they can just kind of connect on an interpersonal level, things generally seem good and fine mm-hmm. and like they all really respect one another. <laughs> and it's not always the case for the team principals. It's like when like kids are getting along, but their parents are being like catty and dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> the the yeah. team principals are, you know, and and I wish in this scene it had been a little more evident that Toto was kind of going to bat for the drivers Mm -hmm. and his drivers and Mm -hmm. other drivers and their safety because what it really feels like is that he's losing and that other people have found a way not to lose and he's mad about it. Mm -hmm. And those two things are not, you know, mutually exclusive. Like, he can be feeling them both, but in his raw emotion and what all these other team principals are picking up on is like, well, you're jealous that we figured it out. And if you had figured it out, you might not care so much about the driver safety, man. 
Absolutely. And you should, and you should either way, because like you said <laughs> earlier, like it was heart wrenching to watch like the best driver in the world like succumb to the most common ailment in the world, which is like chronic lower back pain. That's not mm. something that Lewis Hamilton should be dealing with. As as someone who threw her back out this week or this oh, weekend Megan, and is no. still dealing with some very fun repercussions of that. I'm I'm mostly oh. fine. It, it is when I stand up, I do feel a bit like an 80 year old where I'm a little yeah. hunched over. I'm mostly on the men. But as someone who is currently going through that and does not have to drive a race car at 200 miles an hour around very sharp turns, uh, very, very sympathetic to Lewis and his plight. It's uh, very, very hard to watch. Um, just at the end of the episode, we get some of the stuff that happened at the Silverstone race. Um, we get the Zhou Guan Yu crash, which... I remember being extremely, extremely hard to watch during the race um, was also equally hard to watch for me again during Drive to Survive, especially with kind of the slow motion aspect that they use in this. And you see just how much his car is flipping, how it slides upside down, essentially like on the top of his helmet and the halo that they have in the car. Very brutal. I came away with a little bit of a better opinion of George Russell, though, after watching this mm. this episode and seeing his immediate reaction to that crash and getting out of the car and just kind of running over and helping and, you know, not really thinking about his standings or, you know, if he was going to be able to get back in the race because he was a part of the crash or what was going on. But, and then hearing him interviewed after and just saying, you know, as a race car driver, we all know how claustrophobic that can be, how scary that can be. Um, I felt like it was a very effective scene for him. And yeah, it definitely, not that I had like a negative opinion of him coming in, but my opinion was definitely a lot more positive coming out of this episode. Well, I think like in last season when we saw him get in a crash um, with Botas, mm -hmm. you know, and then the immediate result was also to get out of the car. And then <laughs> not that it was like more on one than the other, but they got into like a helmet slamming, you know, four letter word tossing, very little silly little argument that was mm -hmm. quite like childish. And I think that this kind of high pressure environment does bring out those very like impulsive parts of you sure. and it was nice to see in this moment that his impulse was like help 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 even if i can't do anything try to do something because that yeah that crash was so awful i mean mm -hmm. I, I in my five seasons of watching drive to survive and the crashes that have taken place during those five f1 seasons haven't seen i mean obviously romain grosjean like that that was very wild, but it was a different sort of thing. Watching the yes. distance that that car covered and going fully upside down. I mm -hmm. mean, I you know, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but I, I think Drive to Survive has shown uh, what a good installation the Halos were. And yes. like, I know that there was plenty of drama around that at the time that it happened, but it has, it has saved lives, you know, at this point. Yes. So it seems worth it to me. Yes, I, I would agree. I would strongly agree with you on that, on Jody. Um, yeah, really, really great episode. Um, then we get to episode three, which is where we start to see things unravel for Ferrari. We get a lot of shots from the Miami Grand Prix, of course. This was the inaugural year in Miami, and everyone seemed very excited. Lots of celeb shots. You know, David Beckham walking around in a nice cream suit looked great. Um, we get to see a nicely sunburnt Daniel Ricciardo, 
which I, <laughs> I was like, this is this is special. His his excuse, I think, was that it'll look great tomorrow once it turns into a tan, which I was like, you know what? You do you on the skincare front, my Listen, man. Yeah, he probably knows. He lives in Australia, but not everyone can handle Miami. I did think this was so fun to, mm-hmm. like, get to see America in a like exciting light, you know, and like that mm-hmm. all the drivers and the and the principals were really excited to be there. And yes. obviously Miami is really fun, but this like showed it for what it was. And it it made me feel like America has some sort of culture, which is what I always <laughs> feel when I see them go to the other places is like, oh, this is really specific to Hungary or like, you know, like these different cultures. And I was like, oh, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe this is really cool. It seems really fun. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, Now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall, chosen by champions. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Mobile One. The Mobile One brand knows podcasts are a great escape. You can listen to people talking about living and maybe even driving, but of course, there's no substitute for the real thing. So the next time you're looking for an escape, try an actual escape. Take this podcast for a ride in the car and immerse yourself in the drive, because sometimes the best way to escape reality is to truly live in it. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash the ringer to learn more. Yes, it, it was it was special to see the uh, the Kygo uh, DJ set with Lando up there just bopping Hell along yeah. was yeah just just really a lot happened at the Miami Grand Prix. Um, this is though where we kind of start to see everything happening with Ferrari. They have they come into the race with a huge opportunity to basically start to box Max out of the drivers' championship battle. Uh, Charles comes in with a pretty big lead, and if he wins again and extends that. Um, gives them a lot of good momentum going into the rest of the season. Instead, uh, Ferrari starts to m- muffle their strategy. Um, during a safety car, they keep both drivers out on the grid um, instead of changing out their tires. Red Bull pits Checo to help him get into the fight. Um, both of their cars were behind Max, who was leading. So there seemed to be zero point to both of them staying out. You would think at least one of them would have come through and pit so that they would have varying strategies and and one of them 
they could see how both play out on track, basically. Instead, they don't. Christian Horner is gleeful on the pit wall, being like, why Why didn't they pit? He's you know running around to everyone. Why, why didn't they pit them? What happened there? Did they just mess this up? Um, and then Charles Leclerc finds out about all of this and starts giving his race engineers a silent treatment, which was exceptional. And yeah, Max ends up winning. Ferrari struggles. Um, this starts kind of the string and series of their strategy and car low lights, which would go across the rest of the season. Um, what, what did you think of, of seeing, you know, Charles's struggles, all of that kind of interpersonal drama? Um, how did it make you feel about Ferrari? Oh, I mean, I, I thought it was, well, first of all, it was interesting to see the strategy aspect of it, act of, of these teams and how important that is actually play out and drive to survive. Because I, mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen a lot of that. And probably most often it's almost not like dramatic enough to show or like the, you know, the dividends it's yielding are not quite like big enough to even be able to represent it in a show like this. But like for Ferrari that started the season so strong and then these very obvious errors are like absolutely catapulting its drivers and its chances. It was it was interesting to be able to see that. But it's also heartbreaking because for obvious reasons, but I feel like in like season one and season two, Charles Leclerc was like, you know, foregrounded as like the prince that was promised mm-hmm. of F1, you know, and and I think that's real and that's in the show. And this incredible wonderkin driver, the pedigree of, you know, of coming from a family and being introduced from the sport so young, being from Monaco, like he has all this stuff on his side and he just can't get there for, and like, and he wanted to drive for Ferrari so bad Mm -hmm. and Ferrari can't accommodate what he needs to be the like most successful driver that he can be. But I still, I love Ferrari. Like I, I, I love this storied history that they have. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit offline. I mean, the beauty of the Ferrari drivers and team is is unmatched, unparalleled. Like the combination <laughs> of Carlos and Charles Leclerc is just unreal on a number of levels, including how precious they are together, like mm-hmm. in their in their off time. So I really root for Ferrari in every possible way. And to see them just biffing it. I mean, the safety car is like the villain of the season thus far (laughs) in the way that Ferrari Uh just cannot seem to understand what sort of strategy to use when it comes out on the track. I think I think you're right about a lot of that, especially with this being kind of a new turn for drive to survive to take. And, and, you know, they show a lot of what happens on track, but it's mostly in the context of, you know, one driver's arc to the season or one team's arc to the season rather than showing what all kind of does go into an F1 race. And a lot of that is, you know, the driver and a lot of that is the car. But again, there's all of this strategy and there's all of these other factors that go into play. And I thought they did a really effective job throughout this season and especially the first five episodes of, of showing what how important all of this is and and how it can go wrong for a team like Ferrari, you know, probably the most recognizable team on the grid can even have all of this happen to them and, and it can ruin their championship um, chase. You know, they were coming into this, like in, you know, they had all of, all of this ahead of them and it felt like they could just kind of go in and take it. And the fact that they 
flubbed it so severely and so badly over and over and over again was was really fascinating and and interesting to watch kind of the the people of Ferrari reckon with this in real time. Like they interview Mattia Bonotto quite a few times in the first five episodes. And and he admits in this episode that the team is feeling very heavy criticism, him especially for how they're handling strategy and that it's affecting them and it's affecting the trust within the team. It's affecting how the drivers interact with their race engineers. It's affecting, um, you know, what they ultimately decide to do on track and, and all of that kind of coalesces here. And it's, it's, yeah, it's really hard to watch, but, but great television. It also personally hurt my feelings because, of course, the ep- the Ferrari episode ends with Carlos Sainz getting his first, you know, P1 podium finish. Mm-hmm. And that should be really exciting. Yes. And it was exciting, but it also comes with this tinge of he had to make that decision for himself and he had to be kind of selfish about it and undercut Charles in a way that the team is, or other teams try to prioritize mm-hmm. a certain driver. Ultimately, Matias says both of our drivers are competing uh, to be number one and that's and that's how we treat it. And I personally appreciated him saying that because it's always really hard for me when a team prioritizes one driver over the other. And I just really root for Carlos. And so it was exciting for me to see him get that finish. But it also did not have the triumphant air of all the engineers running out onto the track and the champagne spraying everywhere. Like it came with this undercut of, Mm -hmm. well, that's just one more thing that's going to keep Charles from getting the driver's championship. Yep. 100%. Um, Episode four, we get a little glimpse into the life of Mick Schumacher, who, you know, most famously known as the son of Michael Schumacher, which we hear about a lot in this episode, understandably so. Um, We we do get some some interesting insight into Mick here. You know, the fact that he kind of grew up around Max Verstappen and their fathers being great friends and, you know, some footage of them on vacations together and, and, you know, just sweet family interactions uh, I, I did feel like this episode was was hard, hard for me to watch for a few different reasons. The main one being his struggles on track and and kind of knowing ultimately that he wouldn't get that seat at Haas again and just seeing in real time all of his crashes and all of his heartbreaks and, you know, hearing Gunter kind of talking to Gene Haas, who owns Haas uh, F1, uh, about what they're going to do next year and the fact that Mick you know, is costing them a lot of money with all of these car repairs and is not getting them the kind of points that Kevin Magnuson is and is just not performing up to snuff. Um, It was also hard, too, because we don't get a whole lot of home life insight into Mick, which I'm I'm sure was uh, purposeful for a number of reasons. The Schumacher family is very private these days, um, given Michael's accident a number of years ago and, and his recovery process there. So, Really, the only kind of um, away from track stuff we get with Mick is when he's training, um, cycling, and and talking with some some people from his team. But um, what what did you think of this episode? Did you find it pretty effective, or or what what did you think? I guess of Mick coming away from all of this. I mean, I found it interesting. I do think it's important for the show, which is really like built upon underdog narratives, to show that the underdog narrative doesn't always end up with a win. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not always Kevin Magnuson getting P5. It's sometimes it's Mick Schumacher just 
not being able to live up to what he needs to live up to to stay on this team. But like you said, like it was hard to watch. I'll be honest. I watched these first five episodes um, for us to be able to chat about them. And then I went back and watched them just to kind of like enjoy them all over again. And I didn't Mm -hmm. watch episode four again. I was just like, I kind of cruised through it, but it's not the kind of thing. I think it's important for the storytelling, but it's not the kind of thing that you want to watch again because it Mm -hmm. just hurts. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, you know, I did find, I mean, what I found really interesting and would love if you have any insight on is like, why are Mick Schumacher's crashes so hard? I mean, the back of his car came off in one of them. And we hear Gunter saying he's not even driving fast enough to use the brakes, which is not true. And you can tell he's (laughs) driving very fast. But I was just, I was just like, all of these crashes are terrible. And as we hear Mm -hmm. the, you know, the top dogs talking about, they're like million dollar crashes. I just couldn't wrap my head around why they were so bad. Yeah, he he is one who just seemed to lose control quite a bit, especially when he was getting up to to larger speeds. I think the the big crash that we see of his is in qualifying during the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. And, and you can hear his race engineer over the line kind of saying, you know, we really need you to pick it up. We really need you to, to, to push this because, you know, they're seeing what Kevin Magnuson is putting up in the same car and they're expecting the other driver to at least be able to match that or, or come close. And it doesn't seem that Mick is. And, and that's sort of when he kind of seems to tail out at the end. And it, yeah, it's a very violent crash. I remember watching that and, um, there, there was a long time over the radio where it, it didn't, we didn't know if they were able to get in contact with him, how he was feeling. Um, Eventually, he does walk walk away from that. and But yeah, I mean, you see when they pick up the car, it's, it's split almost in two right down the middle, which is intentional with the car design, I guess, to to make things safer for the driver. And so they, they, yeah. they don't get trapped in there or stuck in there. But yeah, very, very violent crash. Very hard to watch. I think one of the other interesting things that I found from this episode was sort of some silly season stuff related. You know, Gunther kind of by the end of the episode is admitting that the seat is going to be open next year. And they reveal in some of the footage that Haas did eventually kick the tires on Daniel Ricardo, who we'll find out later in the season will not be returning to McLaren for 2023. And like, I, I think it was kind of known that they were shopping around the grid and, you know, lower levels of, of Formula One and and other places to try and find their next driver. But it was really interesting to me to hear that they did kind of look into Daniel Ricardo and he just ended up being too expensive for them, which which makes sense. I mean, Haas is not a team that has a ton of money to throw around, but it, it was a little bit eye-opening to know kind of the reason behind that, I guess. Yeah, it was. And to hear a specific number, you know, he wanted yes. 10 million. Mm-hmm. And we we don't get a lot of that. And I I've always kind of assumed we weren't like allowed to get a lot of that. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how Daniel feels about that number being public, but I, I certainly appreciated knowing it because I like knowing how rich these guys are. Yep. Um, <laughs> the answer is very rich, all of them. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. And, you know, in true Drive to Survive fashion, it does all end with Mick getting like his first points of F1 mm-hmm. and ultimately probably maybe his last points of F1. So like, it was nice for him to be able to see him get that and see that like under the right circumstances, he is a good driver. And he, you know, he, he did win F2. Like he, he, he does have the ability to do it. It just wasn't working out, but I, I appreciated 
getting to see that in the end and and getting to know him a little bit. But obviously, well, and you mentioned the Kevin stuff, which I think is actually what made this episode hardest for me to watch is really listening to him fret over how fast Kevin was going and all yeah. and like asking for updates on, well, what's Kevin doing? Because you hear him sort of at war with himself, which is like, you want to do your personal best and and you want that to be motivation enough. But it, it seemed, mm-hmm. at least the way they played it in editing, is like when he gets himself into trouble is when he's comparing himself to Kevin and just not being able to hit those speeds. Yeah. Very hard to watch. Very brutal. Um, last episode that we're going to talk about today is aptly titled Pardon My French. Uh, we get a lot, of, a lot of information about the Alpine overhaul. It starts with Otmar the team principal of Alpine, ironing a team polo, which I, w- I was not aware that men ironed polo shirts or that that was a normal thing. Maybe it's not. He wasn't just ironing the polo. He was ironing it for what felt like hours and yes. ultimately was unhappy with the job he did. That is a yes. very easy knit to get wrinkles out of. So maybe he actually doesn't iron a lot because he was yeah. having a really hard time. That's but true. Maybe it. <laughs> maybe it was all for show. Also, we would think of him as, as a domestic person. We also got this adorable scene of him kind of practicing his French sayings in the car, which felt very relatable to me as someone who's trying to learn French on Duolingo right now. I was wow. like, oh, good. That's how I sound. I was like, glad, glad to know that uh, I'm just that bad. Um, just wonderful <laughs> stuff. But yeah, so we start to get into kind of the driver drama of Alpine. Um, You know, we're introduced to Esteban Ocon, Fernando Alonso, and Oscar Piastri, who comes into this episode as their reserve driver. Um, Otmar says that Alpine has invested around $4 million in Piastri's development. Um, I'm assuming that means throughout his F2 days, he's been a part of the Renault Sport Academy since 2022. So I, th- I thought that was interesting. That $4 million number got got thrown around a fair amount. Like, seemed like he definitely wanted us to, to come away from this, remembering that they spent a lot of money on Oscar Piastri, which is fascinating. Also, and at then, some point, $4 million becomes $5 million, which yes, is also funny. Yes, <laughs> yes. Love, love to, you know, we, we, we just like to round up, you know? We're a round up family around here. Yeah, yeah, completely. So yeah, then we get into some of their battle with McLaren for fourth place. The, you know, the French Grand Prix, they focus on a lot. And also just kind of like the full vibe shift for this team. This is, um, you know, they seem to really be in the hunt this year and they have a great car. They have two drivers that they feel com- comfortable with and confident in. Um, and yeah, it was exciting to see them be so excited, all kind of hugging and happy and, you know, a lot of unity in, in the post-French Grand Prix footage. Um And then we get a bit more into Oscar Piastri. We start to learn about him, which is, you know, interesting. If if you haven't been following F1 across the 2022 season, you're like, huh, why are we starting to learn? (laughs) Why why do we need to care about this reserve driver? I've never had to care about him before. That's that's fascinating. Um, Why are they capturing all of these camera shots of his face looking extremely villainous? What is going on here? Yes, exactly. Um, you know, we learned that he's the formula, former Formula or reigning Formula Two champion, I guess. Christian Horner comes in and admits that Red Bull could have pursued him at a younger age and didn't, and that he ultimately regrets it. They're, you know, really kind of hyping this guy up as as somebody who's a, a great young driver and could be kind of the future of of Formula One. Um, and then we get Sebastian Vettel's retirement, which really kicks off. A whole lot of stuff across the rest of the episode. Um, 
Before we get into all of that, though, I wanted to talk briefly about Checo's reaction to Seb's retirement, if you remember this. Oh, I remember it. (laughs) Number one, finding out that Seb has an Instagram was was a wonderful face. And and two, just like watching his retirement video, I, I found it very sweet that Checo was like so invested in all of this. I love Checo. He is like maybe my number one favorite. I I love his personality. He seems so genuinely kind. He's very sweet. He's always offering to take Gunter on his private jet. (laughs) I just, and like, and I love how much everyone loves him. And I love how great he's doing. I mean, I think that, and he's, he's rarely gotten like a full episode of focus. If you're a drive to survive watcher, you kind of have to like pick up between the lines, but to see him get this opportunity at Red Bull to drive a really good car and do really well has been really exciting. I just love him. And there was like nothing more Checo than those producers setting him up like that. You can tell that they were like, hey, man, check your phone. And he's so gleeful when he says, Seb got an Instagram. (laughs) And then his just immediate face fall when he finds out that Seb got an Instagram because he's retiring in a very dramatic black and white video. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I, it was, it, I think, yeah, it was hands down my favorite moment of <laughs> these first five episodes was like, and just so well cut together by the editors because I was on the edge of my seat too. I mean, Checo mm-hmm. is like a perfect audience surrogate Yes, uh, that I also couldn't have, I thought something terrible had happened. They're showing everyone looking at their phones and then it's like, oh, Seb got an Instagram. They're just making a joke. Like, this is funny. Everyone loves that he finally did this. And then, no, not only has he retired, but this is about to kick off like an absolute scramble waterfall of a silly season of trading around contracts and potentially lawsuits. Yes, 100%. Soon after this, we go to the Hungarian Grand Prix, which is the last race ahead of the summer break. Um, we hear from Atmar quite a bit that they're trying, that Alpine is trying to re-sign Fernando Alonso on a deal, trying to keep him in the family. Um, he seems pretty confident that it's going to happen. They have kind of this, this shot with him and Fernando talking ahead of the Grand Prix. And he's, you know, basically saying, send, send this stuff over, sign it and, and we'll be good. You know, like seeming like everything is locked in and it's, it's all good to go. And then we start hearing rumors that Fernando is taking meetings elsewhere and, we start to see, you know, other other teams kind of fade, fading into the mix and Otmar talking about loyalty and, uh, uh, you know, how, how important that is for drivers and that they should be in, heavily involved in their teams and stick around long term, which, you know, just very fascinating stuff to hear from a team principal. Um, and then we hear that Fernando is going to Aston Martin and has has decided that this is the the place for him where he wants to be in the end. Lauren Stroll and Aston Martin ended up, you know, being able to throw more money at him. We don't get numbers, but that is sort of what Alpine kind of alludes to is the fact that we we just can't shell out the kind of money that they can. Um, Otmar, you know, says that he had hoped that their car would be enough to sway Fernando and that maybe along with that, they wouldn't have had to pay as much money, which is not the case. Fernando knows his dollar amount and and I I can respect that even as he is sort of like, Again, being very content to be the villain and then kind of mess things up for everyone around him. And then we end with the fact that Alpine is like, that's great, Fernando. You can move on. We've got Oscar Piastri. And we get the tweet announcement (laughs) that this is happening. 
And then we get the rebuttal. And that is what this ends on. And it is one of, still one of the funnier sports moments in my recent memory was all of this happening. I can remember because it happened within just a couple of days span. And, and the Fernando stuff was even more dramatic than kind of what they play on Drive to Survive. Like Otmar had given this quote when it happened that Fernando essentially didn't really tell him that it was happening. He kind of found out on Twitter and then Otmar apparently tried to reach out to him and Fernando was already on summer break and wasn't picking up his phone. And Otmar was like, I'm pretty sure he's like in the Greek island somewhere and just not answering my calls. Just like some really fantastic media management all around on this. But yeah, really very... I like... I respect anyone as a sports fan. Like, I, I respect anyone's decision not to watch Drive to Survive for any reasons. But when those reasons are like that these storylines are falsified or that they focus too much on the drama or that the drama storylines are like cobbled together. I'm like, y'all, this is some housewife shit. Finding <laughs> stuff out on Twitter, like, like do, you know, doing things in the blogs like mm-hmm. this. Is, it's so signature reality TV. And it's like really what's happening in the sport. And it, it seems like it, I mean, so much of this stuff does seem to play out on social media, yes. which is just fascinating. And then like for you, you know, it's interesting to hear from you that like it really was playing out in this rapid succession in the way that we're also seeing it in the show. These just mm-hmm. like tweets flash up on screen where Oscar Piestri is like, huh, you thought like that's and and what happened there? Did they not ask him? Did they just assume or I guess there was, you know, there were some documents in place, but it it was really I loved I loved this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, episode 5 had so much texture, so yes. many dynamics, you know. I I really loved learning about Alpine and I liked spending this time with Otmar who before had just been this sort of like coward presence under <laughs> Lauren Stroll, you know, like I uh-huh. really felt like he was ready to let his personality shine. And, 100%. And like, I always appreciate someone who's not really afraid to just kind of seem nerdy or or like, I like when a tryhard knows they're a tryhard. And, and that felt like what I was getting from Otmar. And I think the contrast of he and Zach Brown is going to be interesting as that as that comes along more. But I just, I found getting to know this team so fun and for it to then completely unravel in <laughs> such like a succinct package of one episode was pretty unreal. And I also, like you said, it's, I, I like Fernando so much more than I used to because I just like how self-aware he is yes. and that he, he's, you know, he, he quite literally says you have to have heroes and you have to have villains and I'm fine with being the villain. And uh-huh. I, and I also like when he's like, you know, I, I, and it was nice to see in that moment for Alpine also on the track, uh, was it at the French Grand Prix when, um, Fernando basically like is just toying yep. with, uh, is it the Ferrari? The Ferrari, he's, he's keeping cars, but oh no, it's a cup. It's a couple of cars, but he's keeping two behind him. So that mm-hmm. Esteban Ocon, his teammate can catch up and you kind yes. of rarely get to see those like positive on track team interactions. And it was such a nice strategy contrast to what we'd been seeing with Ferrari of like, mm-hmm. oh, this is strategy 
working, like this is a, a real positive. And, and for them to, you know, get that four spot that is so important to them for financial reasons. This, if episode five just had so much story to it, I loved it. Yes. Ended on an incredible cliffhanger as well, which I I always appreciate on an episode. I almost feel bad that we're stopping at episode five for this podcast, but... Yeah, tell me about it, Megan, because I stopped myself at episode five because I was like, (laughs) if I watch episode six, I will get confused and talk about it because Mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. about to be so into what is happening next. And I just, I, I, as you know, I'm unspoiled, so I can't wait to find out. I love it. Please, please DM me once you've watched them. I want to hear all of your takes. Um, before we go, yes, before we go, I just wanted to ask you a couple of last questions. Who was your MVP from the first five episodes? I know there are a lot to choose from. We obviously talked about a lot about Gunther, Talked a lot about Fernando as well, um, but lots of characters in these episodes, lots of drama. Um, but who who stood out to you? Okay, I'm going to first give a curveball, which is like a storyline MVP, which okay. is Silverstone, because yeah. throughout all five episodes, we just keep like going back to Silverstone. And I know that that kind of um, nonlinear storytelling is not everyone's cup of tea, but it really just enforced to me like how important that Zhao crash was, like how much it affected all these different teams. And I like seeing stuff like that, how like one thing can affect the Mm -hmm. whole grid for like, you know, the entire season. Um, And it also gave this really interesting uh, point of view because after the crash happened, they had to completely restart. And there was a lot of drama around um, that they went back to like the original order, even though it had, you know, so, like mm-hmm. Lewis had gotten ahead some and and signs had fallen behind, like some things had changed. I really loved seeing what each of these individual drivers did with a second chance because yes. it really was like a second chance to restart a race. I just thought that was so interesting. And we just see Silverstone so many times that, to me, it was kind of an MVP. MVP. Otherwise, it's what I already mentioned, which is the absolute impact with a small amount of time of Seb releasing a black and white Instagram video to announce his (laughs) retirement and completely change the course of the 2023 season. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The fact that we didn't get really much of anything from Seb in in the Drive to Survive interviews, and that was really the only footage that we get of him. Yeah, incredibly effective stuff. Also very And we didn't get him, him last season either. And I'm just like clamoring for some Seb. So maybe that is what made it mean so much to me as well. I just, <laughs> and that interaction with Chaco, I, I just loved it. Amazing. Do you have um, an MVP? I think my MVP, oh, that's a good question. I think Otmar was my MVP. Just, just for how he ended episode five. And he's sort of our main character of that episode. And and I'm expecting him to be, um, you know, pretty influential across the next couple of episodes, just given how episode five ended. He, we see a lot of him. His his home in Oxford looks lovely. Um, great, great setup for him. And yeah, I, I hope we get a lot more of him. I think he was my MVP. Who is yeah, your least choice. valuable player? I, I've got a little bit of an unconventional one here. Um, Ooh, least valuable. Well. I was kind of thinking about like like stock rise and stock drop, and I definitely mm-hmm. had Otmar as like a like his stock is rising as far as like him being a character, him influencing the story. I was 
I, I was very charmed by him. I, I feel that he is someone who I could just immediately turn on as well. So I you know, <laughs> hold the right to do that. Very but fair. S- stock drop. I mean, I'm going to have to say Toto. Like, this is mm. not a strong coming out for Toto, who for so long in Drive to Survive has been this, like, towering just intimidatingly handsome presence who seemed like he could do no wrong and had such a firm grip on his team and on what's happening. And as Christian said, in between cackles, like now we are seeing him and how he deals with pressure. And at least for what we're being shown, it's not great. It's not Mm -hmm. the level-headed guy we've always seen when he is kind of dealt the bad hand. And then I also, I I found it kind of like, kind of nerdy and sweet how once, you know, Lewis gets that third place finish that they're all happy with at Silverstone and and it seems like a a sign that the car is running better. He cannot stop saying like, well, it's just a sign that the car is doing better and well, this is just (laughs) a sign for moving forward. And, you know, I want him to be able to pump himself up like that, but to see him have to do it and sort Mm -hmm. of defending himself to others and really trying to get out in front of this thing was it's just a different look. Yes, very much so. My LVP was in a similar vein and it was the Mercedes car. Horrible performance and just the (laughs) fact that it got shit on so much by all of the other drivers coming in was uh, just a hysterical scene to me. I I loved it so much. I think it'll probably be one of my all-time favorite drive to survive scenes. I I love when when (laughs) drivers come together to hate on things. It's, It's wonderful. My last question for you, what are you most excited to see in the last five episodes? Maybe this is obvious given the way that episode five ended, but a lot of exciting storylines to come. Sure. Yeah. My immediate answer is, of course, like, how is all of this going to shake out with Oscar Piestri and Otmar and Zach Brown and McLaren and Daniel Ricardo? Like, is it, you know, I, I, I haven't totally managed to stay unspoiled on this, so I do technically know how it's going to shake out, but I'm just excited to mm-hmm. watch that. But I would say looking even further and overarching, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this because in the past, we've already gotten so much of it that I'm kind of over it. But I want to know what's going on with Red Bull, you know, mm-hmm. like for so <laughs> long, Red Bull has been and Christian Horner have kind of been the like, um, like unwanted protagonist. It's like it's like Gunter's the pra- protagonist that you want and Christian Horner is the protagonist that you get. Um, but we've really gotten very little from Christian Horner. I don't think he came in until like 15 minutes into the first episode, which seemed insane in compared mm-hmm. to former seasons. And I'm just re- really, you know, and it also has to be said, Max is back, w- which we haven't addressed, yes. which was like yes. a jump scare in in the first <laughs> episode, which I'm so happy about. And that's like another stock rise for me is like, I want that for Max. Max, he needs to be on the show because Mm -hmm. otherwise he is an unwilling villain. We don't, for Drive to Survive watchers, like we don't, and, and Formula One plus Drive to Survive watchers. Like if you don't get that personal side of him, and for the most part in these five episodes, it's been a good look for Max. Like, we literally are seeing tiny little baby pictures of him, mm-hmm. listening to him talk very sweetly about Mick and Michael Schumacher. Like, I, I, you know, so I'm, and of course, as I've said, uh, Chaco is my baby and I'll always stick beside him. So, like, I I can't wait to to find out what's going on with him and um, just, just really just rooting for him always. 
Yes, I, I'm with you there. What a wonderful five episodes. I had so much fun watching these. It's even more fun talking to you about them, Jody. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks, as always, to Erica Cervantes for the production help. And thanks to all for listening. We will be back soon.